Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Teresa White, president of Columbus, Georgia-based AFLAC, talks about leading the insurance company during this pandemic and also corporate social responsibility. I think it's great for companies to tweet things out, to show solidarity. I think it's wonderful to do that. But I think after you do that tweet, the next thing that people are looking for is, okay, so now what does that mean? This is not a moment that we're looking for. It's a movement. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says Georgia will recertify the state's general election results today. After a third count, Secretary Raffensperger says the results have not changed. Disinformation regarding election administration should be condemned and rejected. Integrity matters. Truth matters. Today, the Secretary of State's office will be recertifying our state's election results. Then the safe harbor under the United States Code to name electors is tomorrow, and then they will meet on December 14th to officially elect the next president. While we will continue our investigations to their conclusions and where prosecution is necessary, we will work with the State Election Board to refer them to the proper prosecutors. We are working with the counties to assure a fair, safe, and secure election for January 5th. We will continue to take steps to assure that only legally registered Georgians will be casting ballots. Meanwhile, this weekend in Georgia, President Donald Trump continued to repeat his baseless claims of election fraud. The president was in Valdosta on Saturday. Now, other Republicans, including Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, have spoken out saying the party needs to shift its focus to the January 5th runoff elections. In related news, today is the final day for Georgians to register to vote in those runoffs. Now, currently, there are more than 7 million registered voters in Georgia. That's the most in the state's history. And last night, three of the Senate candidates did participate in a debate hosted by the Atlanta Press Club. Now, current Republican Senator David Perdue declined to participate in the debate against Democrat challenger John Ossoff. Thus, Senator Perdue's spot was occupied with just the lectern. In an email to the Associated Press, Perdue's campaign manager said Ossoff, quote, lost a debate against himself, close quote. In the night's second debate, it was Republican Senator Kelly Leffler and Democratic challenger Reverend Raphael Warnock now, Leffler would not directly acknowledge President Donald Trump indeed lost his re-election bid. And look, it's vitally important that Georgians trust our election process. And the president has every right to every legal recourse. And that's what's taking place. But I've called for investigations. And now there's 250 investigations open here in Georgia. But the president was also clear that Georgians need to come out and vote for David Perdue and myself because of What's at stake in this election? Meanwhile, Reverend Warnock did not answer whether or not he would support expanding the Supreme Court if elected to the Senate. I'm really not focused on it. 
Um, and I think that too often the politics in Washington has been about the politicians. Uh, I'm a pastor, and so when I think about these issues, I think about the people that I've had to stand with uh, in the critical care units uh, while their loved one was dying or between life and death. And not only are they concerned about the sickness, they're wondering how in the world they're going to pay for it. Now, Leffler and Warnock did agree they both would get the coronavirus vaccine once available. So while the campaigning continues, so does the increase of new cases. The Georgia Department of Public Health reported a record-breaking number of new cases in one day last Friday, 6,376 to be exact. And public health officials warn those numbers are expected to rise. Now, at the time of this broadcast, 443,822 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 36,039 have been hospitalized. And of those, 6,676 considered ICU admissions. And we know now, since the state began recording these numbers back in March, 8,971 Georgians have lost their lives to the virus. This is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And as those cases continue to rise, President-elect Joe Biden is choosing who will lead a crucial agency within his administration. Multiple news outlets report Biden is expected to choose Harvard infectious disease expert Dr. Rochelle Walensky to lead the Atlanta-based CDC. Biden is expected to make this announcement tomorrow. Walensky will succeed current CDC director Dr. Robert Redfield, who began the role back in 2018. Biden has said the CDC will play a key role in his coronavirus response plan. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. You've probably heard their commercials. This was an unexpected bill not covered by my health insurance. And this is the Affleck duck who helped me cover it. Affleck! These are all the cab rides to my physical therapy. And Affleck paid me directly to help. Affleck! What he said. Well, the first Affleck duck commercial aired back in January 2000. So this year, the Aflac duck is 20, getting up there. Aflac's history goes back far beyond these commercials. The insurance company was started by three brothers in 1955 in downtown Columbus, Georgia. At the time, it was called American Family Life Insurance Company, and the brothers sold their insurance door to door. Remember that? They've come a long way. Earlier this year, the company posted its annual revenue had reached more than $22 billion in 2019. Still, 2020, for a lot of Fortune 500 companies, well, they may post the same revenue, they may not. As we all know, 2020 has been an extraordinary year. From the pandemic, to protests about racial justice, to a very polarizing presidential election. 
Many companies, big and small, but especially the Fortune 500 companies like Aflac, they faced calls for greater corporate responsibility and to address some of the social injustices in the nation, especially as it relates to race. You know, we started a series of conversations with corporate leaders and executive positions, and we asked them, and it's the core of the conversation, what is the role of corporations and leaders during a time like this? Well, joining me now to share her reflections is Aflac's president, Teresa White. Teresa White, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. Let's start with the Aflac duck and just how important this duck has been to the company. Let me tell you, our feathered friend is absolutely important to us, um, extremely important. Um, when the Aflac duck came on the scene, um, it boosted our awareness um, in the U.S. to over 90%. And that is uh, phenomenal for a little small insurance company in Columbus, Georgia. Um, and we continue to, to have wonderful awareness. Um, so people know who we are. Um, sometimes they just don't know what we do. You know, Teresa, normally I always save this next question toward the end of a conversation when I'm in for segments like this, but I'm actually going to move it up a little bit. And so the question is, how would you describe your leadership style? You know, I would describe my leadership style as um, inclusive. Um, I um, absolutely uh, love solving problems, so I'm a problem solver. But uh, what I like to do is get varying perspectives um, so that we can come up with solutions that make a difference and that are sustainable um, in the environment. So um, I think uh, you would hear other people call me a very inclusive and uh, results-oriented uh, leader. So we're in this space and time where so much conversation is about diversity and inclusion and corporate culture. What is your personal philosophy as it relates to all of that? Well, I'll say this, Rose. I, I have been very fortunate in that um, Aflac, uh, before Teresa White arrived, um, had already uh, started to establish that framework and saw the importance of a diverse workforce. Um, our um, current uh, CEO, uh, Mr. Dan Amos, um, he is an absolute advocate and um, for diversity in the workplace. Um, we uh, have about 45% of our employees are uh, minority uh, employees, 67% are women. And we, you know, our board of directors is 45% um, African-American and um, diverse. So, you know, we have great bones, I guess I'll say, um, in the, the diversity piece. Uh, but then, you know, the other part of this is now how do you make sure that you sustain that type of thing? And in uh, 2000, we established, and actually it was established by Dan, the, uh, our diversity council. And that council exists with a number of people of d diverse backgrounds um, and um, just really they give us all the insights and input that we need in order to ensure that we're listening, that we're understanding, 
um, what types of issues exist in different areas of our organization, and then that we're responding as well. When you say responding to issues, I'm imagining you're talking about from employees, from inside the company. How would you assess that process for your AFLAC employees and their concerns being able to reach the executive team or management team within AFLAC? I will say um, our employees are pretty good at providing us with feedback. We have an open door policy. So um, the (laughs) feedback comes um, formally in the way of our, from our diversity council. But we have a number of informal ways that we receive feedback like email. Um, We have um, a website called My AFLAC Experience. Um, that uh, where people will post things out on that website. Um, But we also have surveys that we do through our HR organization to help us to understand where people are and how they're feeling, especially during this time. You mentioned uh, the protests, you mentioned, you know, social injustice, and um, you, you mentioned COVID. I mean, this year has been a, a storm of activity mm-hmm. and that people have been really trying to figure out how to deal with. And we cannot, as an organization, um, put ourselves in a bubble and ask people to check all of their feelings and emotions at the door. Um, that just doesn't work in real life. And so AFLAC has to create a platform to ensure that um, we are able to help people in whatever way to uh, deal with some of the issues that we've been seeing, especially uh, because our employee base, you know, it's important to our employee base. This year with the protests and and calls for social justice and and calls for police reform and all of the movements as it relates to Black Lives Matter, uh, what's your opinion about corporations taking a stance? publicly issuing statements? So I I have two ways of thinking about the statement. You know, I'll talk to my personal view and then I'll talk to what AFLAC did. From a personal perspective, um, actions, in my opinion, speak louder than words. So I really could care less whether you put a statement out. Um, What I'd rather see is change. Um, and making sure that there is diverse representation in our government, making sure that our HR practices and um, our workforce is uh, diverse and inclusive. Um, So I'm more about the result, the action uh, versus the tweet. Now, did AFLAC put something out? Absolutely. Uh, We put something out um, we've been in the fight for social justice for 65 years. So, so our fight didn't start yesterday. And I think that that speaks uh, to why our numbers, uh, as it relates to our workforce diversity, that's why our numbers look like they do today, because we've already been working on that. And that's been in our culture. And so, uh, but, but, you know, I, I think it's great for companies to tweet things out. Um, to show solidarity. I think it's, you know, it, it's wonderful to do that. But I think after you do that tweet, the next thing that people are looking for is, okay, so now what, what does that mean? And I, I've always said, um, and I, I said it a number of times with uh, my employee base, 
you know, this is not a moment that we're looking for, it's a movement. And a movement is a sustainable thing that helps people to move in a direction, it's an action. And that's really what I like to see as action more than just the words. And of course, the biggest story of 2020 has been the pandemic. You all, like so many other businesses and pretty much everyone in the world, we all had to shift the way we do things, how we do things. Uh, What was this process like for Aflac? Well, you know, insurance companies, um, you know, have the opportunity of the delayed reaction, you know, so people are going to go into the hospital, um, they're going to have their event, and then when they come out, they will submit claims, um, you know, later. So we've basically done a tremendous amount of stress testing with our actuaries to uh, understand the impact from a policy perspective um, to AFLAC. And we feel pretty good about um, uh, financially, you know, how we will, uh, we stand uh, with that. Um, our employee base um, has been just phenomenal um, in response. We have a national command center that we stood up immediately uh, upon uh, seeing what was going on actually in Japan. Um, many people don't know that uh, AFLAC, uh, about 75% of our revenues come from Japan. So one in four people in Japan own AFLAC um, insurance. So we, um, so, so we were seeing the activities that were happening in Japan and we're starting to think about what that would mean if those activities, if the virus spread in the US. And we had a little head start, uh, quite frankly. And uh, so what we did is we put together National Command Center. Um, Upon putting that together, we decided that most of our employees um, needed to be working from home. And so about 94, 95% of our employees are working from home and God bless them. They are working. Um, you know, if you, if <laughs> when, when schools were closed down, um, uh, they were still working and trying to take care of children as well. So much like many um, in the um, U.S. Um, had to deal with all of the issues of school closures and restaurant closures, et cetera, Our employees have been in the middle of that and they've really done a phenomenal job with keeping the train on the tracks for AFLAC and for our policyholders, certainly. So we're very, very grateful for that. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Teresa White. She is the president of the Georgia-based Fortune 500 company, AFLAC. And we're continuing our conversations with presidents and CEOs to talk about their approach to leadership during this year from the pandemic to the protests, to obviously being a very polarizing election year. Teresa, you were also entrusted uh, from your CEO, Dan Amos, to lead AFLAC's pandemic response initiatives. What's that been like? Well, I'll say this. When something like this happens, you have to get the people who are closest to the action um, engaged. And so Dan and I have uh, always collaborated on various things. And then on this one, he said, Teresa, you are the best suited uh, to do this uh, activity. And basically what we did is we set out to um, ensure that we looked at our, the, the employee base, we looked at the company, what you know, our policyholders and rules that we had 
in our policies. And we looked at the community around us as well to say to, to try and understand where could our resources best assist during this uh, critical time for many in America. And um, so from an employee-based standpoint, I, I've already you know, talked about making sure that they were safe off the streets, not having to come in to um, the work site. So we were able to get them set up at home, purchase computers um, and all of the things that they need in order to function um, in their own homes. Um, but then we also um, looked at our policies and our policy holders and um, we saw that there was, there was concern around um, being able to uh, get tested. And so we um, created a benefit or turned a benefit that we had in our policies into um, a benefit where you could go and get COVID testing mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. for free um, or really for a discounted rate. We would give you the dollars uh, to be able to do that. And we were also looking at things like, you know, our policies speak to hospitals as this facility um, that, you know, we all normally know as a hospital. Mm -hmm, However, mm -hmm. during COVID, some hospitals were USS Mercy or, you know, they were tents in the middle of, of the, um, of the uh, parking lots of hospitals. So what we wanted to do is make sure that we made it easy for our clients to do business with us and not hold them up for a claim that they would bring in or they would send us. So we put more digital properties out there to allow them to apply for claims quickly so that we can pay them quickly. And then from a community standpoint, we donated dollars uh, to um, a number of charities, uh, direct relief. We gave uh, money for PPE to companies or two organizations. I shouldn't say companies, but they're, they're not-for-profit organizations uh, because that was the, the first issue that we needed to deal with, especially in this community. Um, and then we went to uh, donate money to the crisis text line uh, for mental uh, and emotional support. Um, and most of that was targeted toward um, some of the healthcare professionals that were dealing with this every single day. Mm -hmm. And then the Morehouse School of Medicine, we, uh, we were doing a partnership with the Morehouse School of Medicine really to focus on the opioid crisis um, that has impacted many American families and specifically in rural areas and what we were seeing were the increases were in African-American communities. And so with that, we knew that during a period of time where you had COVID um, going on, um, the seclusion that's required for uh, this virus uh, particularly um, has taken a toll on those who are <laughs> struggling with this disorder. And so our um, partnership with the Morehouse School of Medicine was to ensure that we did not allow that to over the COVID to overshadow the <laughs> issues that we needed to deal with. So they're conducting research, um, investigating models of uh, care delivery uh, for us, seeking other solutions uh, to the opioid crisis um, in America, because uh, we believe that just because COVID-19 um, came and took center stage does not mean that these fundamental issues will go away for um, our communities. And so 
um, that's been our partnership. Back in April, you told Bloomberg your company expected a surge in insurance claims as people were seeking treatment for the virus and and other related issues. Uh, Has that happened? What have you noticed? What's been the trend here? We've seen some um, increase in our claims activity specifically to COVID. But here's the interesting thing that we're also seeing. Um, As we see the increase in COVID claims, non-COVID related claims go down. Hmm. And so you think about that and you, you, it's, it's almost counterintuitive until you realize that when you have the lockdowns, you're going to have less accidents. When you have um, the, you know, uh, periods where people are afraid to go to the hospital, you're going to have less people claiming um, on, you know, uh, on uh, issues like, you know, um, hospitalization or what, because they're not going, Mm -hmm. They're, they're afraid. Now, here's what we expect, and and this is what we're modeling out, but what we expect is that cancer doesn't go away because you're you're quarantined in your home. Heart disease does not go away. So we expect that what we'll start to see is more acute issues coming out of the COVID pandemic, and that's where we expect to see an increase in our claims activity. When we started this conversation, I asked you about your leadership style. So now I'll ask you this. What have you learned, not only just during this time, but since you've been president of AFLAC, what have you learned about yourself? You know, one thing that I've learned about myself is I love to meditate and and really give myself time to think and to, uh, to read and, and take things in, um, draw conclusions. I thought that that would be a lot of fun working from home. But what I've realized is I am a social creature mm-hmm. and uh, I enjoy uh, building relationships uh, with great people. I enjoy uh, understanding various perspectives and some of the perspectives aren't ones that I agree with, but mm-hmm. I enjoy the debate. Um, and I'm not able to do that as much um, when I'm um, in this uh, situation. So I've learned a lot about myself spiritually um, and emotionally. And, um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, when you get somebody who's really having a hard time um, with being in the house, you need to talk to them because this is no joke. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, this, this can be an issue for many people. And how have you all relayed that message to your own employees in terms of staying connected? I mean, obviously you have your many branches and offices throughout the world, but there's something to be said about when you come in every day to a building and you see your colleagues. How have you all managed to stay connected? What's your approach been to keep morale up? Yes, we we have uh, over 5,000 people across the U.S., but we also have about 50 to 60,000 agents that are um, that that sell Affleck agents and brokers that sell Affleck policies, and we have had Zoom uh, recognition. We have had town hall meetings via Zoom. We have we have zoomed it up. <laughs> the other day, um, I was recognizing a group of people who had done some wonderful things, and you know we sent um, charcuterie trays to their homes. And so they opened their doors and received their charcuterie trays and their wine. 
And then they get on Zoom and say, oh my God, this was so wonderful. So, you know, the spirit of people is really who we, that's, that's what we're about. And so we're finding new ways to celebrate people and to ensure that we are telling them that they know that we know how hard this is for everybody. Teresa White, president of the Georgia-based Fortune 500 company, Aflac. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, you know, I, I do love your work. I, I actually had the opportunity to study up types of things that you are <laughs> talking about. And yeah. it's just extremely meaningful. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The National Civil Rights Organization, NAACP, is partnering with the consumer credit reporting company Experian with a pilot program. The reason? To assist African-American homeowners at risk of losing their homes due to COVID-19-related hardships. It's called the Home Preservation Grant. And joining me now with more is NAACP Atlanta branch president, Richard Rose. Mr. Rose, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Always good to be with you. Before we get to that partnership with Experian, I'd like to get your thoughts just on a few related issues because, first of all, we're hearing with the nation's housing affordability landscape already in a crisis mode, concerns about what it will look like in 2021, whether a renter or a homeowner as it relates to COVID-19. What concerns do you have about housing affordability going into the new year? So we have an ongoing concern about housing affordability, particularly in cities like Atlanta. Atlanta, uh, the, the rents and, and prices are high uh, because, you know, people are moving in closer. So we have an ongoing concern about that. We are good to see that the Obama's administration is, is at least talking about some things uh, that really have to be tied to the land itself. Uh, you know, we've been kind of disappointed in some of it. Uh, the Gulch Project, for example, mm-hmm. uh, guaranteed 200 units of housing affordability, and we just didn't think that was enough. And public housing, you know, is a thing of the past, but the need is not a thing of the past. So we have ongoing concerns. We're happy to see some movement. Uh, and, and uh, you know, this, this particular program kind of speaks to that uh, uh, issue with respect to black home ownership much Mm -hmm. of black wealth is tied to their homes you know millions are either in some type of pandemic related forbearance or mortgage relief program but there were millions that didn't qualify how optimistic are you that hopefully if there is another coronavirus aid package that it is approved by congress it will include more measures to help homeowners and renters well we hopeful you know uh perhaps the pressure uh, of this election in Georgia will will impact the, the, the Senate to really be more uh, considerate of people in need. Uh, and it's just not black homeowners, obviously. It's uh, mm-hmm. white homeowners, brown, black and brown and white all over America that uh, uh, are suffering now because of this pandemic, particularly in service industries, you know, restaurants and bars and all of that. All those, all of those jobs, and the entire hotel industry has changed. The, the uh, uh, corporate meetings, uh, that whole industry has changed. So, I'm hopeful that 
that the pressure uh, that we're looking at, we got this Senate race coming up January 5th that we want to make sure people get out and vote. I'm hopeful that will impact the Senate to uh, make a move, to, to make a deal with uh, the Congress, uh, the House of Representatives to get some relief for all America. And speaking of Congress now, right now it appears that even if there is a new relief package, it does not include stimulus checks as in before. Some say, well, it's not a big deal, but for others, it really was a lifesaver. Are you hoping that it will include some type of actual financial relief, basically stimulus checks? Well, absolutely. We, we hope that it will speak to the needs of the people instead of uh, some preconceived notion about who deserves what. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's amazing that uh, during the Obama administration, the big deal for the Republicans was deficit spending, how high the deficit spending is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, then it became uh, not a big issue. We hope that they don't come back with this deficit issue uh, because America needs this. I, I think I think that uh, this, uh, this relief ought to be followed by a comprehensive jobs program to put in place some of the things that Obama administration suggested, like a works program to, mm-hmm. to uh, repair all of the bridges that everybody, uh, all the engineering sources say in desperate need of repair. You might recall a few years ago, a, a bridge across the Mississippi River at, at Minneapolis uh, collapsed. Mm-hmm. You know? So uh, I, I think if we continue to focus on what America needs, instead of what a particular party needs, uh, that we can get the relief uh, working hand in hand. And speaking of relief, one more question before we get to this partnership with Experian. President-elect Joe Biden has yet to name someone to head up the Department of Housing and Urban Development. You know that is a crucial position here with those federal-backed mortgages, FHA, VA, USDA, Fannie, and Freddie, of course. Your thoughts on what type of individual should head up this very important department in Washington? Well, clearly somebody needs to be in that position who has experience in the industry. The current secretary has, a, you know, is a surgeon, uh, had no experience in housing other than maybe paying his own mortgage or his own rent. Uh, that needs to be changed. We need professionals. I think what we've recognized for the last four years is how important it is to have people with experience, knowledge, uh, and the intellect to really operate in these cabinet positions. Uh, We've not seen that. I mean, we've got a disaster in housing, a disaster in education. There are professionals. There are committed public servants who can serve ably uh, in these positions, and we need them to do that. So let's talk about this partnership with Experian. How did all this come about? The NACP Empowerment Program, one of them, is partnered with Experian, which, you know, the credit bureau, mm-hmm. uh, to provide up to $10,000 for a family uh, who has uh, run, come to the end of the forbearance period with their mortgages, but are employed, uh, but was, you know, were impacted by the COVID pandemic. Uh, we think it's a it's a pilot just for Atlanta. It's just targeted to African Americans, and we hope it'll it'll work. I might add that one of the co-creators of this program is a uh, young Atlanta uh, Morehouse grad mm-hmm. who suffered in, in the last um, recession, lost his house because he lost his job, and so I'm sure uh, you know that impacted him. To, to help to conceive this program. And we think it's a good program. They have to live in Metro Atlanta. They have to be uh, have to become delinquent 
uh, on their mortgage because of COVID, they have to be currently employed and able to maintain the mortgage. And of course, they have to have proof of mortgage delinquency. We think it's a great program. Well, when you say they have to be employed, but you also said they have to be impacted by COVID, but if they've been laid off or, or simply lost their job due to the pandemic, they still wouldn't qualify or would they? Well, they, they have to be able to show that they, even that after this $10,000 grant, mm-hmm. that they can maintain the mortgage going forward. And it could be a different job. It doesn't have to be, it could be a, a lower income amount, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they don't want to, they don't want to throw the money away if they if the uh, recipient is not able to keep going. This is to kind of catch them up from the past and then allow them sort of a fresh start. You all made this announcement on December 3rd, but the deadline is tomorrow, the 8th. Is that enough time? Have you all been able to get this information out to the city of Atlanta for folks to apply? Well, we have not, but the deadline has been extended to December 10th. Oh, so well, that's, that's good couple, news to know. That's, that's great news. And, uh, you know, I, I had this conversation last week, uh, last weekend with Experian, and I said, well, you know, that's going to be cutting it close. They actually sent out the first information to us late December 2nd, basically December 3rd. And, you know, with all of uh, what we're dealing with to try to get this uh, voters out to make sure we participate in this runoff, um, you know, it, it was a lot on my plate. So now I'm focused on it. Uh, it, and I've talked to them about the extension. They, they did agree to extend it for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And we, we need to get the word out. Uh, and so we're doing that. The, the, uh, they can go to the, people can go to NAACP.org website. There's a link there. There's a link on our website, NAACPAtlanta.org. And on our Facebook at NAACP Atlanta. Any idea, Mr. Rose, so far, how many folks have applied and how much funding do you all have? This is a pilot program and Atlanta right now is sort of the test city. How much funding do you all have and how many households do you anticipate to help? I don't have the details on how many people have applied, um, nor what the what the total funding amount is. I do know that they are looking to to continue to raise money to fund this program. So uh, uh, the only way to, to find out is to see if for people to apply, get mm-hmm. approved, and see how much money, uh, uh, how many people we can help. You know, there was a, another program with businesses by the Beyonce Foundation mm-hmm. uh, that we had early in the year, and it did have a definite limit of $250,000. This is not that program. Mm-hmm. The limit is the funding, current fund is much, much higher, and we hope we can, you know, help thousands of people given this short window. And Experian is, is also kicking in a majority of the funding here? Yes, they are. How hopeful are you that, that you all can continue to help folks? Because as you know, Mr. Rose, this is not going away anytime soon. You know, we've heard everything from an eviction tsunami, you know, to obviously the, America's housing affordability is at a crisis level or beyond that. You all will have to continue to look for more partnerships to help folks if you can. Absolutely. And by the way, there is a rental program plan called Operation Hope uh, for those people who are renters. But uh, I think what's, uh, you know, people recognize that that Congress has not come out to do anything and benefactors across the nation are really coming, uh, moving now to say, what can we do to help Mm -hmm. this situation? Because we know it's tough. NAACP Atlanta branch president Richard Rose also partnering with Experian, the credit reporting company. 
Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Again, we'll have a link to all of this on our website, to your website. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.